Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I'm your host, Andy Sido. We're on number 51. Last week was a special episode, the landmark number 50 with Sarah Slayton. If you haven't heard that one yet, when this one ends, it'll take you directly to it if you're if you're on the middle class rockstar page of whatever streaming platform you listen on and the podcast is on all streaming platforms as well as youtube now so if you want to see our pretty little faces as we talk if you want to see me itch my nose whatever head on over to youtube and look up this episode and they're all being posted on my youtube channel that's maybe one positive thing that's come out of uh, being a musician in the COVID era is I've expanded the online presence of the podcast ever so slightly. Uh, the listenership of this podcast is expanding a little bit more than ever so slightly, however. Uh, we teamed up with Chris Kay's Colorado Playlist, and that is a weekly radio show that Chris Kay does. He's been on the air in Colorado for uh, almost 45 years. It's a weekly show that he does featuring Colorado music, and it is played on 25 different FM frequencies for 52 hours a week all over Colorado. And now when you listen to his radio show, the Colorado Playlist, uh, every episode that we have of this podcast, we're putting together a seven to eight minute clip, uh, sometimes a little longer, that is getting played on Chris's show. So Chris, thank you so much for having us. And Chris Kay has been on the podcast twice. He was just a, a few episodes ago for his second visit. And he always has tons of data and analytics uh, for indie artists. He's just been around forever and he's a great... He's a great resource if you're curious about what's been going on in the music industry or what um, what might happen next. He's a really interesting guy to chat with about that kind of stuff. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support in a monetary way, I'm now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. And that is supporting both my music career and this podcast, and I've been putting up unreleased songs on there. I'm going to start putting up some exclusive content for podcast listeners, too. Um, I'm not even really sure yet. I'm just experimenting with different ideas of things I can put up for content. But for as little as $3 a month, which is less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you can support and and help keep this keep this podcast rolling for another 50 episodes and beyond. If you're not in a position to support in a monetary way, I certainly understand. You know what you can do for me that's almost just as good, and I would absolutely love it. Um, write, rate and write a review wherever you listen to your podcast, especially if you're listening on Apple Music. Give me that five-star review in a quick little write-up. It'll take about 30 seconds, and it really, really is a huge help for me. So thank you in advance for considering that. As we're coming towards the end of the year, everybody's wondering, what's going on with this thing? Are we going to have a vaccine? Will there be big concerts in summer of 2021? Will indie artists be able to tour in certain states? Or is this all going to stay locked down for a while longer? And whatever you do and whatever your goals and aspirations are, I hope that you're doing all right. And I hope that um, you've been able to adjust your plan and and kind of roll with the punches a little bit. And, you know, however you've been reacting to things, I I wish you the very best as 2020 comes to a close and a new year begins. And for a lot of people, I, I think it's viewed as a, a new beginning, 2021. We'll see. We'll see. But I'm happy to jump on that ship at the new beginnings of 2021. 
My guest today is Dango Rhodes. He was a founding member of the band Elephant Revival, and besides that, has had a long career in the music industry and is, is doing all kinds of different things. In fact, currently, he's got a solo career going, and he also has a studio where he focuses on um, artist development, artist empowerment, actually, as he puts it, which I absolutely love, artist empowerment, production, um, songwriting. So he's got a studio in Boulder, and he's also putting out his own stuff. Um, he grew up in the Chicago area next door to a band called, or, or a couple members of a band called Cornmeal, who was touring around in the jam scene for a long time. And he sort of got around their music and became influenced by music some in that way. He also spent a lot of time hanging around Chicago Old Town School of Folk Music, where he learned from some of the greats living in that town. Chicago, that town, <laughs> if you've heard of it. As he got a little older, he started hitting the road in the back of his car with his dog Nico and his upright bass. He knew that he was meant for a life in music when he was performing on the streets of New Orleans during Jazz Fest. And David Bautiste, sort of the patriarch of the Bautiste family, if you're familiar with New Orleans music, saw him on the street and picked him up and took him to, you know, a jam, an open stage to play with tons of legendary New Orleans New Orleans musicians and including a lot of the other members of the Batiste family and it just felt right to him. He moved to Colorado in 2001 and at the beginning of 2002 started playing with High and the Dog. He also started touring with a band called Uncle Earl and he was able to play in that group with all kinds of great musicians including touring with Abigail Washburn and Bela Fleck as part of that group. Um, he, we chat about all these things in the podcast as well as what it's like to be stuck in a snowed in in a cabin with Pete Seeger. That's a true story, and he's going to tell us about it. <laughs> um, what it's like uh, touring before, you know, the, the big online craze of Facebook and Instagram. He talks about the formation and the career of Elephant Revival. And one of the things I always ask artists, you know, this is called Middle Class Rockstar. You don't have to sell out Red Rocks to, to come on Middle Class Rockstar. But for the artists that have, as, as Dango has, I'm always curious how it happened. And obviously lots of hard work and lots of persistence and some magic. But there's a lot of artists that work really hard. And I know there's a lot of hardworking artists that listen to this podcast in the artists that make it to that level where they can announce their name and 10,000 tickets are sold, I always wonder to them, what was the intangible? What was it about that musical project that was different than the one before it? Um, you know, you see a lot of great artists that are on the cusp for a long time and they just needed that one song. Like Nathaniel Rateliff, I think of that as a great example of that was Son of a Bitch a few years back. But there's something special about Elephant Revival. They had a chemistry, and when they started playing together, there was just something right about it. So I, I chatted with him and, and sort of asked, what was what was that thing? What was that intangible? What was it that made Elephant Revival Elephant Revival? And I really enjoyed what he had to say about that and how the band formed uh, and all that. And, the, you know, just the, the, whole, uh, the whole curve of the band. And if you haven't heard of this group, I encourage you to go, you know, after the podcast, go check them out on Spotify, wherever you listen to music, or buy a record, even better. They pioneered the genre transcendental folk. 
Dango penned several favorites from that band, including When I Fall, The Pasture, and Jet Lag Blues. Lately, he's been putting out a lot of music under his own name. He just put out an A-side, B-side. The first track was called Ring Out. And then the one that just came out a few weeks ago is, is called Life's Too Short. Both songs have a love does prevail theme about them and feel about them. The first track, Ring Out, is a collaboration with Grammy Award-winning fiddler Michael Cleveland. Cynthia D. Davis of Finding Folk says this about the song. In a time when everyone's struggles have been magnified and the world is heavy with hurt, it is the artist, the musician, and the poet who remind us how to unite. As I listen, Dango reminds me at the end of the day, we do have each other and we do have a voice. The song Life's Too Short is a lighthearted song about exactly that, life's too short. In Dango's words, I get so caught up these days in the doing and all too often forget about the necessity of being. In the celebration of this struggle, this song is a reminder to take the time to remember to rejoice in the more important aspects of life, such as spending time with our loved ones and forging a path in accordance to the light. They're both beautiful songs. Go give them a listen on your favorite streaming platform. When I asked him, uh, when I asked Dango for a track to play at the end of this episode, I thought I was going to get one of those two, but instead he sent me a song called Shadow of the Horse, which is a previously unreleased track, and he said it just feels appropriate for this. So I'm very excited to get to share uh, some of that with you at the very end of the episode, Shadow of the Horse. I want to give a quick thanks to our sponsors. First, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast, and for any of your audio or restoration needs, go to www.pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music, your home for simple and affordable licensing for sync. For more information, go to narratorrf.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Hey, Dango, what's happening? Doing pretty well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on the show, Andy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time. And the big event right now is that you just came out with the second side of your A-side, B-side releases called Life's Too Short. Yeah, so there were two songs that uh, that I just felt like they were going together pretty well. Uh, the first one was called Ring Out and the second one, Life's Too Short. You know, just being able to take a look at uh, what we do have in our lives to be grateful for and um, and also, you know, a reminder that, you know, through all the darkness, you know, love does prevail and re remembering to focus our hearts in that way. And I thought these songs uh, represented that. So in terms of releasing music, I felt that it was just a good time to put them out there. Yeah, I think they, they both have a, a great message. And I, I was noticing the production style listening through, and I, I was hoping you could talk about a little bit. There's, I, I hear lots of other voices and life's too short coming in and singing with you, which gives it sort of a, a playful feel in a way. Um, and and then with with your lead vocals, a lot of the lyrics are sang, but also almost spoken in a way. And what was sort of your your process behind the production? Yeah, and this one, this is an interesting one because when I was on the road, uh, my production partner and songwriting partner uh, would usually send me like bed tracks, you know, sometimes like acoustic guitar tracks or this in this case tenor banjo. And then while I had time, uh, you know, between uh, sound check and show, I'd, I'd go backstage and 
you know, sometimes take a listen and to what he sends me. And then if something hit right away, um, sort of like a top line gets written and I just send it back to him immediately. And so we've created this cool process flow over the years. And uh, my production partner is Evan Reeves. And both of these tracks are examples of that kind of production where he sends me something. And then if it just hits, it hits. I send him something back in 15 minutes and it's just like, okay, we have the working structure for a song. Um, so that's both of these songs. So they, they really represent that co-writing and co-production relationship I have uh, with my buddy, Evan. Um, so I almost forgot the question already. I was just going to ask you to chat about the production style a little bit and how your, uh, your singing was almost spoken in, in some ways. Right, right, right. Um, so that just sort of, uh, felt like it fit the narrative on this one where it was almost more a narrative and, um, almost like a Leonard Cohn type aesthetic yet at the same time, uh, juxtaposed with, um, sort of a vibrant, almost Southern, uh, gospel-y type feel uh, sure. in the background. So it's like that juxtaposition I, I find interesting. Uh, and there was a phase in my writing that that's that kind of how I was writing. Um, and yeah, and then the background vocals, uh, Evan and his uh, partner, Helen, yeah, they just had these awesome hype vocals and they have a little writing group that they have called heaven right now, H-E-V-N. Uh, so yeah, overall though, this production is a good example of the work that he and I do together. Um, and yeah, but and, yeah, sorry. Where, where were these ones recorded? Um, if you'll excuse me, I have a cat whimpering outside the door. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, these were recorded at my studio, uh, our studio in Boulder. Um, uh, Elephant Collective is kind of our studio collective where we have different people working and coming in and out and a whole bunch of studio musicians and like a wrecking crew and different producers and mixers and engineers. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that's in downtown Boulder and we've had it up and running for about 15 years and different iterations. And right now, that studio is taking on a whole new life, and it's uh, feeling great. So now with these two tracks out, you can't promote them in the same way that maybe you could have 12 months ago. What's your plan in regards to that? You know, uh, Ring Out was uh, more focused on the political sort of um, situation that we were working with, um, and still are, of course. And then Life's Too Short is... Yeah, life's too short isn't uh, as necessarily timely. Sorry, I uh, hope, hope you're able to edit this as I have a rambunctious uh, animal in the room. Um, but, you know, promotion uh, at this point, you know, it's really just playlists, man. Uh, just, just trying to get the songs on as many playlists as possible so people hear them uh, all over the world. Um, working with different promoters in that way, uh, keeping a social media presence, uh, being as real as possible in whatever form or medium that is uh, for each individual. And then, uh, you know, doing live streams uh, when possible, if that's your thing, it's not everybody's thing. Uh, I do a, a few, uh, but not, not on the regular. 
and then um yeah there's uh, it's almost feels like its own discussion like how how are musicians promoting themselves during uh a time of lockdown and quarantine when uh, the live music market isn't there. Sure. Um, and I'd be happy to, to speak to that for sure. Well, sure. Go, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Patreon is a cool thing uh, that a lot of musicians are doing. Um, you know, having patrons to the art and being able to contribute in those ways. Uh, social media presence, of course, is important, but we're, you know, working with an algorithm and, and there's always, um, challenges there and i think what really comes across is when you're as real authentic and vulnerable as possible uh so my my encouragement to most of the musicians out there is um you know just being as real as you can be uh with with your fans and connecting in those ways and then also to look at um where you want the music to go what platforms uh, whether it's Bandcamp you know, Patreon, of course, the stream, bigger streaming ones um, are the, you know, harder to monetize, of course. Um, so you gotta, you gotta take so much into consideration these days. Well, um, I, yeah, and I appreciate you elaborating on that a little bit. I know a lot of the listener base is, is indie musicians, and so they'll appreciate that. And actually, I think I'll, we'll probably circle back around on that concept on something a little later, but I wanted to uh, jump backwards. You've been touring for almost 20 years. How did that start for you? Did Where'd you grow up and what was the first project that you started hitting the road with? Yeah, I grew up in Chicago. And when I was, uh, when I was 15, a band called Cornmeal moved in next door and they were kind of on the jam scene for quite some time. And I, I really got to watch them sort of form and become a band. And I had been playing for a couple of years at that point, probably started when I was like 13. So a young teenager. And that was really awesome because then there were all these Chicago musicians coming in and out of a shared driveway space that we shared. And I was witnessing all their rehearsals. My neighbor, uh, Jason Berger, uh, who helped found that band, was a great songwriter. And then I also would uh, go down after school to the Chicago Old Town School of Folk Music, uh, probably two to three days a week, and just start learning you know, from some of the great teachers in Chicago. Um, so that was sort of like that part of it all. Uh, but then I really just hit the road and I was traveling back and forth from Southwest Virginia to Illinois, to Colorado, to Oregon, and really crisscrossing the country with uh, an upright bass in the back of my Azuzu Trooper and uh, my dog Nico at the time. And it was really a uh, formulative experience. What, uh, what was the biggest marker though, was when I was down in New Orleans uh, for Jazz Fest, I was with my buddy, Carl Cole, who, who soon became, later on, became the bus driver for Elephant Revival. Okay. Uh, Jeff, the real Neil Cassidy kind of character, you know? Um, so I was living on the streets with him uh, and playing music. He was a drummer, I was a bass player at the time. So we had an upright bass, a mini kit, and we picked up a, a great guitarist songwriter in Colorado and we became a street trio. And it was just, it was incredible. And David Bautiste, uh, the father, the patriarch of the Bautiste family, uh, saw us playing and he picked me up off the street and took me to St. Augustine High School uh, during the Jazz and Heritage Festival and put me on stage with all these incredible musicians, famous New Orleans musicians, including more of the Bautiste family, yeah. like, like the meters, you know? Right. And uh, they just had me come out there and like play Love Light, you know? And 
it was it was incredible uh and that was the turning point um where i knew that i was on the musical path you know because i was doing a lot of different things as as well and I, i think i was 19 at the time yeah and uh you know once again i forgot what your actual question was so me too. That's okay. The, the, uh, it sounds like you had a melting pot of influences and that shows throughout your career with different projects and especially being somewhere like New Orleans that is a melting pot in and of itself with tons of different musical types and stuff would be, um, you know, something that would, that would really inspire you. So it, and upright bass that was your that was your main instrument for a while right because i know I've, I've seen you play some other things banjo and mandolin and stuff as well but that's what you were pursuing uh for a while yeah upright bass has always been uh number one and the reason being is i was always really drawn to world music all different cultures all different world musics and i i just realized that the bass is very much relevant to every single cultural music and all world musics and uh, I think that's what really drew me to the bass uh, at that time. And the same could be said for any instrument. Any instrument can be, you know, put into the context of, of world music. Sure. Uh, but there's just something so primordial and foundational about bass. Um, and that's what led me to it. And who, who would have known, you know, from where the path began to, you know, to where it is now. Yeah. Um, I, I ended up in Colorado in September, 2001. And I joined uh, High on the Hog, old time string band in January, 2002. Uh, performed with them for two or three years, toured the country with an old Panasonic cell phone and road maps. So I got, I got on the tail end of that. Yeah. And uh, I joined an all female uh, string band called Uncle Earl, so got to, uh, hang out with Abigail Washburn and Kristen Andreessen and Raina Gellert and Bela Fleck uh, was with us during that time. So I spent time on the road with Bela and uh, then went to New York uh, to join the Mammals and um, spent a lot of time with uh, Mike and Ruthie, Ruth Unger, Jay Unger, Molly Mason, and and also Pete Seeger uh, because I was roommates with Tao, uh, Tao Rodriguez Seeger. And that was just incredible one of the, the greatest experiences like of markers in my life was uh, being able to spend time with Pete Seeger and uh, getting snowed in up at his cabin in Beacon, New York, and just listening to all the stories. And Sure. Well, yeah. we, okay. We got to, we got to backtrack a little bit because you just covered a, a bunch of great things that we can delve into. Um, first off, what was the influence like being on, being on the road with, you know, an Abigail Washburn and a Bela Fleck, what did you, what did you learn from them? That, uh, well, Bela is, is one of the most humble, just beautiful humans. And I was always like, it always felt like there was something unattainable, you know, at a certain level of artistry or mastery. And that like these people must be like, almost like untouchable or something like that. And that was just a falsehood, falsehood in my mind, um, you know, as a teenager or something. Um, but then just realizing that the greatest musicians and performers out there are usually so much of the time, the most humble, kind, caring, 
you know, people uh, and, and that their mentality is really wanting everyone, you know, to have the opportunity to, to succeed and to be the best that they can be. And uh, I felt that uh, from Bela. And uh, at the time, Abigail was, you know, just, just one, one of my friends, you know, and uh, it's just really sweet. Um, I was young. I was in my early 20s. Um, I was definitely a little bit starstruck, but I, I worked with it. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask if, if, it, if it felt that way. And I mean, after a while, did they all just feel like friends and fellow players to you? Yeah, yeah. And um, just so much respect at the time. I was just in awe of like where at that point in time, the path of my life uh, was taking me and just enjoying the ride. And man, did I have, I have so, I had so much to learn, you know? Yeah. And so I was very open. Oh, that's, that's really neat. And so now uh, Pete Seeger, as if it's, you know, a trivia question on a Snapple bottle, what do you do with Pete Seeger stuck in a cabin? Hmm. Well, you get, you take out the banjo. <laughs> and uh, Toshi was uh, making stew, Pete's wife. And then uh, I forget the man's name, but there was one other man there who was doing a new, uh, version of ring out or not ring out sing out <laughs> ring out was my single um so there was like this whole revisionist thing going on of all the catalog of great american folk music uh and so that was so cool and then i had just been to west africa at the time i was actually I had just gone back from senegal where i was studying west african music and so pete was really intrigued by that so he was showing me like pygmy uh traditional banjo rhythms and you know, how that relates to American folk music. And, uh, oh, and at the time, it was 2003, uh, somebody had just dropped off uh, The Audacity of Hope, uh, Barack Obama's uh, first book. Yeah. This was before the 2004 convention. And so we had this huge discussion about Barack Obama uh, and just, yeah, how, uh, how, he believed that he was going to be, you know, one of the great leaders of the country. And then he, uh, he passed down that book to me and, uh, yeah, just, man, talk did, about American culture. Huh? It, did you get something out of the book? Oh, totally. Um, I mean, I don't remember. I, I mean, I read it 16, 17 years ago. Before he was famous. Before he was famous. <laughs> Which I'm really glad I did because I, I got to see a side of him before there was a media portrayal of him, you know? Right. And I could relate, you know, because he was from Chicago and I was from Chicago. I mean, I didn't live on the South Side or anything, but, you know, I could relate to those stories about being a community organizer in the city, what that must have been like for him. And then, uh, yeah, cool stuff. What was your goal at this point as you're traveling the country and meeting all kinds of great artists and touring in different bands? I mean, were you planning world domination or selling out Red Rocks uh, or stadiums? I mean, what was your what was your reason for being at that point? What was your what was your big goal? Well, when I got to Colorado, I went to uh, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, as so many do. And. Um, I remember sitting on the hillside over town, overlooking Sunday night, 
sunset and I never even had a ticket to get into the festival. So I was pretty much in town the whole time and listening to what I could. And I found a spot on the hillside that had a reverberating echo. And uh, Sam Bush broke into Girl from the North Country, mm. the Bob Dylan song. And that was the moment where I said to myself, uh, I'm going to play. I want to, you know, I'm, I'm going to play on that stage one day, you know. And so that was another pinnacle moment. Uh, where I just made the decision, you know, that that was, that that was going to happen. Um, it was never about world domination. I mean, <laughs> it's not so funny saying it, but, uh, but it was always about also like the band, you know, putting the band together and finding the right people and creating something bigger than ourselves and be able to share that with people so that they, they too could tap into that essence and find a deeper meaning and truth in their lives, you know, the people listening so that they could make uh, better decisions essentially about how they wanna to contribute to, to the world and creating a better life on this planet for ourselves and future generations. And um, there was always a very holistic, humanistic approach um, to why I would do the things that I would do. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Red Rocks uh, wasn't specifically as much of a dream until it became the dream of sort of like the management agency right? Uh, or like the management of the band. It was like, well, this is the pinnacle of like Colorado, you know, Telluride, Red Rocks, uh, you know, playing Betcher Hall with the symphony. Yeah. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Big three. The big three. Well, and you and you did those, right? You you accomplished the big three and. How was that group put together that you accomplished that with? So we started um, running into each other in 2003. Like it's all part of this formulation stage. Uh, Bonnie and Daniel met uh, in 2003. Bridget and I met at a festival in 2003. She was doing a fiddle competition. I was performing. We met dancing in a rainstorm. One of those Colorado rainstorms where the sun's out and then there's the rainbow and everything. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Bonnie and Dan met on a rooftop in New London, Connecticut. Uh, we met Sage at Winfield, and we just started cross. And uh, Bridget and I met Bonnie at Winfield as well. And we literally heard each other before we found each other. We were like, she had heard Bridget and I playing, and then Bridget and I had heard this washboard, you know, from across the campground. And uh, we found each other, and we just, you know, spent the whole weekend together. And then we would just meet up for the next like two years, like everywhere, um, like California, New Mexico, Oregon, Oklahoma, um, Colorado, out, out on the East Coast, Connecticut, New York. And we would just crisscross and meet up with each other whenever we could, Kansas. And, uh, and then we, formed, we really came together in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, um, which is the uh, Cherokee Nation. And uh, it's where the where Bonnie's family was from, and I, I lived there for almost two years. And uh, toward the end of that time, uh, we started coming together more and more and more, mm. and started doing some shows in that area. And there was this moment. Uh, I was Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is the end of the Trail of Tears. Uh, so it's where the, all the Southern tribes of the Southeast uh, were marched yeah. in the 1830s, right? And so there's a very profound energy there. Um, 
you have to you have to find it uh, because there's a lot of other stuff too. Uh, but I climbed uh, this mountain called Sparrowhawk. I, I climbed up Sparrowhawk Mountain, which was overlooking the Illinois River. You know, there's all these old arrowheads and stuff like that. And I, I was at my wit's end. It was serious. Uh, I was I was impoverished. I I didn't have it. Like things just weren't working there anymore. Like I couldn't find a job. I was running out of money. I loved the family. I loved the people. I loved the tribe. I loved. Uh, Merv Jacob, the artist, and uh, the local coffee sh coffee shop, and there was so much good about it, and beautiful water, and beautiful springs, and beautiful forests on the foothills of the Ozark. But I knew that it was just time, and uh, I went up this mountain on Sparrowhawk Mountain, sat on a ledge, and just opened up myself in meditation, and I just sort of one of those moments, like Great Spirit, show me a sign, show show me something. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. In that moment, a bald eagle spreads its wings full spread, five feet in front of me, and just, I swear, it was like, just stood, like, stayed there, you know? <laughs> it was like, just like this moment, and then just like, you know, lifted off. Yeah. And in that moment, it was like the elephant revival. Um, and at the time, it was the great American elephant revival concept, but <laughs> it was like, now is the time to call the band together. And, and so I put out the call. I booked some shows. I put out the call. In, invited, invited a lot of people. And, uh, you know, you can look at our history and, and be very aware of, of who showed up. So let me get this straight. A bald eagle gave you a sign to start the band but he was okay with you naming it after a different kind of animal. Well, the bald eagle project, I don't know. Um, well, the, the elephant uh, inspiration came from when I was in Chicago at the Lincoln Park Zoo. Yeah. <laughs> I was caged. I was a caged animal. Yeah. But I, I was passing through and I, I was spending three weeks um, in Chicago. And I was busking outside of the elephant cage at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And this was the time where uh, there were three elephants there and they had been together for 16 years and they had all been separated recently. And each of those elephants in the separation uh, passed away for different reasons, sort of like unexplained, either in transport to their new zoo or when they got to the new zoo. So like in this idea of like, you know, zoos buying elephants from other zoos and like trying to, uh, they forgot the tribal nature of the elephant where these, they, they stick together, you know? Yeah. And that's how they're, you know, they mourn their dead. And, uh, you know, they, they're very ceremonious pachyderms. So that's where the elephant revival concept came in was to revive the spirit of those lost elephants. Um, and to sort of rekindle that memory of what a tribe uh, is like or what it can be like um, yeah. in the modern day in our modern culture uh, when taking into consideration animals and indigenous cultures and all that. And, and so then the, the band formed, and I, I just think that story is really cool, by the way, about the, uh, about the eagle. Um, and, and I mean, to jump back to it one more time, do you think if you hadn't asked for a sign, do you think the eagle still would have been there? Do you think it, it specifically, uh, it, 
it came for you in that moment? It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but if if, uh, if I wasn't there asking for the sign, right, I wouldn't have been there long enough for it to happen. See the eagle. Mm-hmm. So the group gets started, and it sounds like you guys are all just running around the circuit together for a few years, seeing each other, and, and there's some magic there. When the band gets started, how long does it take before you start picking up some traction? Uh, I think the traction we felt right away, uh, as far as like feeling response from people, uh, but we were, we were slow moving like a pack of elephants might be. And also, you know, staying true to where we were at in our lives of, you know, being in our early mid twenties, um, and just sort of exploring life and getting settled, you know, in, in Colorado again and, and doing it the old fashioned way too, you know, uh, traveling around the country in a veggie oil school bus that uh, Sage converted and became our sort of traveling home, going to small towns. Like I, we toured Utah and Idaho so much. It's like who, who gets started and just tour small towns in Utah and Idaho. Uh, yep. We did. Yep. Um, and, but it turned out to be so great for like the formulation of our sound and, uh, you know, picking up veg oil on the road. and It was just a different kind of path. You know, it wasn't like we're going to release an album and tour it and come back and record another album. It was just, we probably toured for two years before we released an album. And we were like, you know, selling burned CDs out of the back of the bus with like hand-drawn covers, you know. Right. Um, and we were so fortunate to be on in like two different, time frames um it was before social media you know like social myspace was just coming out yeah yeah i get i I, man i guess booking and i guess all that stuff was much different then i i when i started doing it we was we were all on facebook and instagram um you're driving around for a couple years, almost living off the land. It sounds like getting your vegetable oil, going places and playing. Um, was that, you know, some of the most freeing times for you as a touring artist? Yeah. I mean, looking back on it is, uh, you know, one of those great chapters of life. Um, yeah. It's, you know, just being able to like when we were in Montana, for instance, like staying at Lolo Hot Springs, you know, and just being able to stay there or, or stopping at a this beautiful spring, you know, waterfall area. And, you know, sometimes having one or two days off and camping in a, at a campground in northern Idaho and and all of us just being there and going off our own ways and writing songs and coming back to the bus and bringing them together and um you know looking in retrospect it's it's a chapter in my life that i i will never forget and more than likely never live uh in the same way ever again yeah yeah and i don't want to spend uh, too much more time on on this on elephant revival because i want to get into some other things too that are going on with your career but i wanted to ask when you guys got red rocks big 
right? Where you were a marquee name that could sell out clubs and play big theaters. What was it about you guys? So many bands go out and do it. So many bands go out and do it. And so many stay uh, just playing small towns in, in Utah and Idaho, but you guys ended up doing, you know, playing to some very large crowds. What was it about that group that was special? What clicked in just the right way? So there's, there's two obvious markers. Um, you know, of course, the voice of, of the wonderful Bonnie Payne and, uh, well, three, I guess, um, you know, the violin playing in the presence of Bridget um, and the, you know, amazing songwriting of Daniel Rodriguez, right? That's what a lot of people noticed, first and foremost, and uh, much respect to that. It's all absolutely 100% true. Um, however, the band Elephant Revival um, was greater than the sum of its parts. Um, so when we came together, there was a synergy, there was a magic, there was something that happened. And that, that's where the magic comes in. And that's, that's about being with the right people at the right time. And it's about letting go of certain elements of your own individual ego for the betterment of the whole. And it very much, you know, very much like uh, the band, you know, uh, Levon, Rick, Richard, Garth, Robbie. Um, like there were, it was that same kind of synergy. It was just like, whoa, what happens when these certain musicians come together, you know, drawing from their deep wellspring of personal individual influences and come together in this band. Mm -hmm. um, and we stayed true to that. And then also like we stayed true to the song. The song was always the guide first and foremost, and we worked in service to it. And so we worked in service to the muse. We worked in service to the song. And honestly, we worked in service to our fans, you know. Um, that is at least my mentality. Um, I know that it was uh, shared. Um, and yeah. And and that was that was the thing. That was the main gig until what was it, 2018? Yeah, we played our, our final show in May of 2018. And, you know, uh, it's termed as an indefinite hiatus. And, you know, so I keep terming it that way um, just to leave a glimmer of hope for the future. Sure, sure, of course. And since that time, you've been doing a lot of things. You've been working solo, uh, do, doing your solo project. Uh, you've, you're working with other artists. So let's get into that um, a little bit. You've just put out this A-side, B-side. You mentioned um, in 2021, I, th I think you're going to put out four EPs that have been written and recorded by you over the last 12 to 13 years. Um, what was the decision or how was the decision made to put those out now? You know, I think it's this uh, almost acceptance piece of or coming to terms uh, like, oh, these are chapters of my life and my experience as an artist and a creative and a songwriter. And so while off the road with Elephant Revival, uh, I would be, be in the studio the, uh, that I was, we were speaking about earlier and recording uh, with my friend Evan. And there were sort of these different life cycles or chapters of works that we would record. 
And the first was in the winter of 2008-2009, um, over the Christmas time, where I was writing on a Civil War fretless banjo from the 1860s. Wow. And uh, created a, a, a series of songs called Banjo Poems. Um, I did a soft release of that in like 2009, where I, I uh, printed out 300 copies and just gave them to family and friends. But that was it. Um, so I'm going to release a portion of that onto the uh, streaming services. And then there was this other, next era was like from 2011 to 2014, maybe. And we call that the forgotten years because we recorded so much and yet kind of forgot all about it. So it's like when I go into that archive, it's like, oh, what, what, what is that? You know, it's like, uh, OK. And uh, so in that era, there's almost like an acceptance of like, this is what was done then. I'm not going to try to fix it. I'm not going to try to make it better. I'm going to be very truthful to what it was. And then uh, and then from there, uh, it was more experimental, the next phase, where uh, we got more electronic with some things. Um, we had some different people in the studio. Uh, there was a little bit more spoken word, even like verging on some uh, hip hop type of feels and doing more theatrical stuff. And so there's like this whole theatrical section of songs uh, that have a whole different production element or style. And um, right now that's called the, the experimental sessions. And that was probably from like 2015 or 2014 to 2017. And then from 2017 and 2018, um, while still in the band and when the band was breaking up uh, or going on hiatus, as, as it were, um, yeah. we were creating this new kind of sound that uh, we, we called steam pop. So it had like more pop elements of production, also the folk elements, and then like a little bit of steampunk and, uh, you know, working with minimalism and and also adding certain aspects at certain times to, uh, to create momentum and feel. And um, so that's some of the more recent stuff. But even given that, like that creates the timeline from like 2008 to 2018. And so like right now I'm super excited about, you know, recording a bunch of the material uh, that I've been writing, you know, since 2018. Um, so like, it's just, you know, the creative process never ends. It's ongoing. And so uh, just being able to um, look at it as different chapters in life of like an overall chronology, that's kind of the aim of the project and um, getting over that fear of releasing, uh, you know, stuff that is, is what it is, I guess you, you can say. Sure. How would you title the chapter that you're in right now? talked about the forgotten years um, in, in these different where you're in a different place spiritually a different place musically where what is this chapter called down the line from 2018 to whenever uh, the first thing that came to mind would just be transitions mm. just uh, transitions this has been a huge transitionary period mm. phase of life and uh, I'm doing a course right now uh, with a group here uh, based out of Colorado and Michigan called the Men's Leadership Alliance. And it's all about, um, the, the course is called Transitions to Transformation. And it's all about, you know, different life cycles and, and the transition periods and being in the, the, the liminal space, as it were, 
as an actual valid phase of life and not just something to like push through or get to the other side mm -hmm. and to really like honor the liminal space as like part of the overarching sort of experience uh, on the arc of life and our seven year cycles. Wow. It, it sounds like both in, in life and your musical life in general, even though you're going under your own name now as a solo project, you're still very much a believer in collaboration and what everybody and what every individual person and energy can bring to the project. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I also um, have on the calendar to go out to Kansas uh, to do some work with my buddy Sage uh, from Elephant Revival from, you know, some of the older days. Uh, he's got a studio out there and we're going to invite uh, our very good friend Sam Birchfield, who's an incredible singer, songwriter uh, and performer out of Atlanta. Uh, so, yeah, that's Sam Birchfield. He just released an album called Graveyard Flower. And uh, the three of us are going to be working on something in 2021. Um, so I'm not sure what that's going to become. Yeah. Honestly. Uh, and then also, oh, forgot your question again. Um, <laughs> I was so engaged in what you were saying, I forgot it too. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I was just asking about the importance of collaboration for you even still. And I, I think you answered it. Yeah. And also in production too, like, I do uh, artist development work and uh, what I've termed artist empowerment work. Right. And, uh, and that's really being uh, funneled through the production work that I do with, uh, with people and being able to help catalyze that spark of magic through the collaborative process um, of working on music and songs and, and bringing them to the studio. You segued perfectly into what I was just to, just about to ask you about, and and I think it's very interesting that you and I love that you're using the term artist empowerment. Um, I don't think a lot of artists they're familiar with that, um, and so very hip of you. <laughs> and, and and so what's that process like if if you know from start to finish with you if somebody wants to work on a song and how could somebody listening to this podcast who says you know I have some great songs I'd love to work um, with Dango on, how could they go about doing that? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, so the, the production process, uh, we, do, we do begin with uh, songwriting and get sort of going into the incubator, if you will, and looking at the song structure, song form, sometimes choruses become verses, sometimes the bridge becomes the chorus, uh, sometimes we look at the lyrics, are we saying things more than once that don't need to be said? Where's the hook? What is the hook? How do we want to play that hook? Um, and so our pre-production process does include songwriting elements, which is can be edgy for a lot of musicians and songwriters because you know each song is like their you know precious China doll. Right. Um, so we work with with that too because it's so important to be able to uh, open open yourself up to that kind of work. Um, as an artist. Um, and then the empowerment work, you know, sort of like almost like coaching on creative practices and how to develop good routines and uh, morning practices that set your day up so that you have time for uh, working on the craft and that that becomes an, uh, as important part of your days as almost anything else. And so building those muscles on a cognitive level. Um, 
and then back in the studio, then getting into uh, production. And um, it all sort of becomes like its own thing. It's almost like uh, artist development has been like one of the terms used in the industry for years. But for us, it's artist empowerment, songwriting, and uh, which also includes pre-production, of course, and production. And so folks can um, hit me up uh, through my website, dangorose.com. And my email, the best for this kind of work is dango at dangorose.com. Perfect. And I'll make sure that these are in the show notes. So if you're listening and, uh, you know, you're familiar with Dango's music and what he does, you can just drop him a line. So check out the show notes. <laughs> that would be great. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear from any and all of you. So... Well, I, did I leave out anything? I was about to wrap up. Did I leave out anything? Not too much I could think of. Um, I think we talked about a lot. I think we, yeah, we covered, we covered as much as you could hope to in 40 minutes. Well, thank you <laughs> so much for taking the time and thank you for sharing your wisdom and um, your collaboration ideas and going through your musical journey with us. Uh, I appreciate it very much and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Andy. Uh, it's been a great interview. I'm uh, excited uh, that you have me on and uh, very grateful and uh, middle-class rock stars, man. <laughs> right on. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. All right. What do you think? Should we let him stay? Should we let him hang around? I think Dango's a pretty cool cat. Uh, myself and I and I think his cat's a pretty cool cat too and I thank him or her I thank the cat for joining in the interview uh, we're about to hear an unreleased track from Dango I feel so privileged to be able to play that on this podcast called Shadow of the Horse and as we were chatting about earlier this week it's really a representation of where Dango's headed this next year he mentioned in the interview releasing several EPs from different uh, parts of his life. And I think that's just fascinating how he's deciding to do that now and how he's going about the releases. So be on the lookout for his music. Um, of course, there's links to check him out in the show notes. And here is Shadow of the Horse. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's a huge help. If you'd like to help out in a monetary way, go to patreon.com slash Sido, spelled S-Y-D-O-W. For any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, you can fire those over to me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.
the high command Musket shots of the purest lead Murdered on sacred land The earth was froze so the blood did stay Till the springtime melted snow Blue and gray we still go on this way Wounded knee and broken bow